A recent Cato national survey has discovered that Americans are increasingly afraid to express their true political beliefs. This fear, incidentally, is found across all partisan lines. In such a climate of evident intimidation, can Americans hold difficult conversations with those with whom they disagree? The answer is yes, they can. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. If we don't start talking to each other, everything you love will collapse. The society, the civilization, the values, due process, everything. The root of everything is communication, open, honest, forthright speech. And, and I saw that eroded. I saw the public trust in our institutions that ought to have guaranteed things like speech rights. I saw that eroded. And I saw where this whole thing was leading. Of course, I didn't realize how quickly the timeline would be upon us. I saw that, and I, I wasn't merely worried. I was scared. Dr. Peter Pagoshin is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Portland State University. He's also a national speaker for the Center of Inquiry and an international speaker for the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. In 1996, a professor with the last name Sokol presented a bogus scholarly article to be published to test the integrity of postmodern cultural studies. Now, on an even grander scale, Dr. Pagoshin, with two colleagues, did the same, but by submitting 20 nonsense articles to expose the ridiculousness of some grievous studies. This mirthful action nearly ruined Dr. Pagoshin's life and became known to all as the so-called squared hoax. Since then, he has moved on to become an advocate for free speech and genuine dialogue. I am so delighted to welcome again Dr. Peter Bogoshin to Watching America. He is the author, along with his good friend and colleague James Lindsay, of the book entitled How to Have Impossible Conversations and subtitled A Very Practical Guide. Peter Bogoshin was last with us uh, in the spring of 2019. Uh, at that time, he was talking about the topic of SoCal Squared. And incidentally, if you want to pull that show up, it is available in, in our uh, chronology of past shows. Um, I am happy to say that the presence of Dr. Bogoshin again brings me utter delight, and I'm so thrilled. So please welcome Dr. Peter Bogoshin. Hi, Peter. Um, what, a, what a pleasure. Thank you for that kind introduction. And I genuinely love speaking with you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so very, very much. Well, I want to uh, begin at the beginning, as they say, with all the turmoil that you had gone through. And before we go any further, I, I must, uh, because I'm sure the audience wants to know, the last time we, we spoke to you, you were in the clutches of uh, possible devastation, at least career-wise. Right. Could you just uh, catch us up a little bit and tell us what happened in relation to your position in Portland and uh, what was the outcome of the very vicious scenario which you faced? So it was really a low, a low point. I was I certainly wasn't expecting to have formal charges brought up on me, brought up plagiarism and data fabrication and failure to go to human subjects. The they interpreted the journal editors as human subjects. And I think as I reflect back on that, I was Pollyanna. I thought, gee, if I could just show that there's a mistake in this, because James and Helen and I had been trying it, and we published another hoax paper before that, the conceptual penis is a social construct. We claimed that penises weren't real, but they were social constructs 
responsible for climate change. We, we thought that if we could just do that, then people would say, you know what, there's a problem here, let's try to fix it. But instead of that, people take, took aim at me and, and they tried to get me fired. Fortunately, people are, were very, very kind and very, very supportive of the work and they launched there was a massive letter writing campaign, public intellectuals and people. They didn't fail to make my life sufficiently miserable after that, but they, they failed in their primary objective. And I'm here I am fast forward today and I'm teaching at Portland State University for the moment. How did you get through most likely, as I imagine you, uh, you doing in, in the worst of, uh, of seasons, walking around your kitchen, perhaps in the middle of the night, uh, drinking a cup of tea, thinking about what you're going to do next. What sustained you through that entire period? That's a good question. I, I don't have any deeper source of comfort. I, I don't pray about things. I think I was comforted by the support that people gave me. And if I can be incredibly blunt with you, mm -hmm. I remember reading my mentor was in Buchenwald. Frank Wesley was his name. And I asked him about a passage from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. About people who were able to survive concentration camps. <clears throat> and I told him that one of the passages that stuck out to me was that some of the reasons that people were able to survive the death camps was because maybe they had nothing else but vengeance on their mind. Maybe they just wanted to seek vengeance against the guards for what they had done to them. And Frank said to me, ah, that's bullshit, with a thick German accent. And he proceeded to tell me a story that when he was picked up on Kristallnacht and shortly thereafter, he was forced to move these stones. And I'm circling back to your question in a second. He was forced to, to move these stones, to pick the stones up and throw them off of this cliff, a thoroughly meaningless activity. But there were two concentration camp guards at the point where people had to throw their stones off the cliff. And every once in a while, they'd just kick a Jew off of the thing and kill him. They'd just murder him right then and there. And then the whole line would have to, to proceed. And I was so utterly blown away by that story. And th the moral of the story is there is no, if you do this, you'll survive. If you get this, you'll survive. There's there's a kind of randomness to this whole thing and a kind of indelibility of human cruelty that if you really are honest about it and you really pause and you think about what that means for your life, then ultimately I think you just have to do the right thing. And, and your mantra, the thing you come back to is your own integrity. So if I thought, and I did that I was doing the right thing, then whatever vagaries happened to come my way or whatever unpleasantness happened to come my way, I, I would weather that. Speaking of your friend, and I heard everything you said, uh, who went through the experience of a concentration camp, uh, as did Viktor Frankl, of course. And mm. I have spoken to uh, a number of survivors over the years, and it strikes me as always interesting that they will never invoke the term Nazi for anyone mm. else but That's those true. who were Nazis. That's absolutely correct. I want to uh, ask you about uh, going about to write this book. Can we can we can, yeah. can we pause for? I just want to linger on that. I think that's such an important point. Mm -hmm. Every time you expand the semantic range of the word Nazi to mean somebody who's not a Nazi, yes, then you demean the experiences of people who suffered under the Nazis. Absolutely, absolutely. And th there's a kind of flippancy, Nazi creep. Yeah, and there's there's a kind of. I wouldn't say it's sacred, but there was something uniquely horrific about that experience that ought not to be watered down. Yes. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you. not at all. I'm, I'm glad you emphasized that point. I mean, basically, you were underscoring for me what I was thinking, as you so frequently mm. do. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for you to uh, have been willing to go back to that point. One of the things that, you know, uh, causes us to open our laptop and to begin to write is some form of, of motivation, uh, wanting to say something. So what was the initial thing that you wanted to say when you opened your laptop, fired it up and went with the blank, you know, figurative pixelated page and wrote your first sentence? 
if we don't start talking to each other, everything you love will collapse. The society, the civilization, the values, due process, everything. The root of everything is communication, open, honest, forthright speech. And, and I saw that eroded. I saw the public trust in our institutions that ought to have guaranteed things like speech rights. I saw that eroded. And I saw where this whole thing was leading. Of course, I didn't realize how quickly the timeline would be upon us. But I saw that, and I, I wasn't merely worried. I was scared. Well, your first experience with attempts to certainly silence you, although they may have occurred before this in events that I'm unaware of, was May 2017. And you found swastikas attached to your office door, not only that, moreover, with a bag of feces, and then additionally down the hall in the men's room, I presume in women's room, more swastikas, this time with depictions of you in photos next to them. And all this stemmed from the fact that you had uh, the courage, although at the time I don't presume you thought it probably necess- ne- necessitated all that much c- courage, but you had invited Google engineer, former Google engineer, James D. Moore, to speak about gender disparity uh, in uh, the right. acquisition, if you will, or making of software uh, coding, etc. And his position was that it was not systematic bias in technology against women. It was more of a propensity or proclivity for various persons, male or female, to be uh, interested in one realm of endeavor versus another. And then everything went crazy for you. It was at this point uh, that, incidentally, you neither supported nor defended Demore. You just simply wanted to have him as a guest. But in the process, it became very, very ugly. And um, in the aftermath of this, you had other events where your microphone was literally cut and uh, a saboteur came in during one of your uh, presentations with uh, with your colleague Pluckrose. And it just seemed to get from bad to worse. Has mm-hmm. it lessened? Um, well, I don't do those big events anymore. I did a reverse Q&A where people. The last thing I did was March 7th. People talked about that. Has it lessened? I think that the campus culture itself has gotten worse. I've taken a step back from from the public events. And and I also think I was, I was, God, when I just think back, I was just so naive to, to, to think, to even think that that was something that, that could be entertained by people like so i i've I've been all this is a really unusual thing to say but it's true i've been all around the world speaking about creating atheists and talking about uh, how, how people come to truth and faith and the one commonality of all those experiences was that there was overwhelming kindness shown to me by christians and even Muslims and pe- people who differed had had profoundly different different views. Now, just think about this for a moment. There I am, for example, in Australia, talking about a manual for creating atheists, and the people are asking difficult, respectful questions. And I certainly became a better thinker and a better person as a result of those questions and those interactions. And then after that event, those events, we would all go out and drink beers, and continue the conversation. Yes, yes, absolutely. There was never a, a threat of violence, yeah. ever. Not one time. No, and I'm telling you, I've done this, I don't even know, how many times, I've go, gone everywhere. Yes. Nobody ever assaulted me, nobody ever threatened my family, nobody ever said that I was a rapist, or a murderer, or a Nazi, none of that. Yes. And we're facing something that's particularly pernicious and dangerous and destructive because it prevents us from talking to each other. And it, it, there's also a cost of association. If you associate with this person, you are a Nazi. Yes. If you talk to this person, so you, we can't even talk. To, we, if you can't talk to someone who has a different belief than you have, I would argue you don't even know what belief they have. Yes. Because you you would have to, the only way you would know that is to listen to what they have to say. You can't just assume that you have some kind of, you know, you're omni everything and know what everybody believes. So, So I think that the culture itself 
the Overton window has shifted. And I think it's more acceptable now to immediately wall off and not even listen to someone. There's in the, these literatures, the, these lines of literature, it's called platforming. You don't want to platform someone. You don't want to give them a platform uh, in any kind of journalism. Anything is allowing these people an opportunity to speak. And, and doing that, you're complicit in that. It used to be that the thing that was sought genuinely, at least one hoped, was, was the concept of truth. Uh, then we got into um, issues of, of variables of truth, your truth, my truth, very com- right. comparative and what have you. Um, I've always sought out people that I disagree with. I'm very indebted and grateful to Christopher Hitchens for his mm, book, excellent. God is Not Great. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was well written, uh, a, a little you know, malicious at times, but in general, a good book. And I was very grateful for it. And he posed questions which made me mm-hmm. examine my Christianity, and I'm indebted to him for that. The same mm-hmm. for Richard Dawkins with The God Delusion. And you mm-hmm. obviously are very involved with Richard Dawkins' organization as a, as a leader within it. But with each of those examples of speakers, Christopher Hitchens, of course, he uh, enters into debate with Larry Talton, uh, uh, Richard mm-hmm. Dawkins, with John Lennox. Uh, you can add additional names like Sam Harris and what have you. But it doesn't seem to apply uh, to, to persons today, as you're saying, that they can entertain the idea that those who oppose us or have a different position actually can be um, capable of bringing greater clarity in ourselves to fruition. And one of the things mm-hmm. I really liked uh, in your book, and I want to address this, is the chapter that's entitled Changing Minds, including your own. Can you elaborate mm. on that, please? Yeah, I just want to, again, linger uh, on, on what you just said. Let's say that, that I would hope that nobody thinks that they're 100% correct about, about moral things. Like, yeah. I, I would hope that's the case. But let's say that, that somebody feels deeply and strongly they're 99% correct about something. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay bring this up in the book, Cynical Theories, your, your, two of your former guests. If you are 99% sure that you're true and somebody else has an opposing view, then wouldn't it behoove you to listen to what that view is so that you can bring yourself from 99% to maybe 99.5%? Yes. Wouldn't it, wouldn't yeah. it behoove all of us yes. to genuinely listen to people who have opposing views so that we can patch up, at the very least, patch up and fix our own? But that bleeds it, itself into revising our beliefs. We, we can't all be right about everything all the time. And to think so, there's, there's no politic or polite way to say, say this, but if you think that, you are delusional. Yes, I agree. You, you, you just are. Yeah. And so, so the question is, how can we look at these conversations as opportunities to become more knowledgeable, more, more thoughtful, more reflective, and even more rational. And, and I think that the way to do that is to genuinely figure out, okay, why does this person believe this? When you figure out why someone believes something, you can figure out, among other things, if the method that they use to come to that knowledge is what you should use. So none of us should want to be wrong one, one moment more than we have to be. So any kind of conversation is an opportunity to to revise our own beliefs, tweak them, fix them, et cetera. But the problem is that we are in a culture now where not only is that not valued, but it's ridiculed and looked down upon. So how do we change the culture to make it acceptable to say, for example, I don't know. Every time we ridicule someone for saying, I don't know, or especially if they're in a position of authority, we see this when when politicians do that all the time. You're really creating a culture when those people are forced to pretend to know something they don't know. So we want to create these cultures in which doubt is a virtue. Maybe we already have these terms in our lexicon, like flip-flopping. Well, maybe someone just has new information, so they change their mind. Yeah, we have this problem with people having to be uh, uh, ossified uh, in their position that they had when they were 23. By the time you're 65, you're going to be looking at things different. It's, it's it, In another, another sense, it truly is progressive. Our thoughts evolve. I say to my students, Peter, all the time, I say, do you want to be the same person you are now five years from now? Exactly. 
And most of them will indicate yes. And I said, well, I'm not talking about losing who you are in, in your personhood, but your thinking. Do you want it to be precisely the same way? And then a few will begin to raise their hands. But there's a great reluctance. And I point out that you go to university to change, not right. to remain the same, to go from classroom to classroom and, you know, to put your allotted time in and then to walk across the stage and have your three names stated. You know, right. Beverly Jenkins Friedemeyer. You know, congratulations, right. and applause. You go to change, and right. people do not get this. They don't grasp the significance of it. Now, I want to go back to the second chapter, if I may, um, sure. uh, or the chapter called, rather, Changing Minds, Including Your Own. Um, right. That's a, a, an alien concept in most people today because they don't want to entertain, as you've pointed out, the idea that there might be something that's a bit jaundiced about what they're thinking, and if so, to correct it. Um what was the the main mechanism for the construction of that chapter? And what were the key points that you wanted to bring across to a perhaps unperceiving uh, audience in some places? Well, at one point, it's that changing your mind is actually a virtue. And I, and I would say it's even a moral virtue. It makes you a better person if you're willing to change your mind. So the chapter has its nine things, for example, learning uh, don't blame, but talk about contributions, acknowledge extremists, ask questions, define words up front. thing I still have trouble with, by the way. Well, we may use the same, we may use the same lexicon, but unless we have similar meanings for words, that's another impediment to true communication. Yeah, that, that's right. I did an impossible conversation series in California, and I released all the videos that I do, good videos and bad videos. And I released a video of a conversation that was a train wreck. And we were talking about having open borders. It wasn't until the end of the conversation that I realized that what this man thought of as a border and what I thought of as a border were two totally different things. Yes, yes. And if you don't release those conversations, if you're not willing to show other people that you've had a mistake, that you've made a mistake, we can't get better together. But the problem is with social media Admitting that you made a mistake, social media makes it very hard because there are dog piles and we're ridiculed yes. for doing so. Right. So the, the impetus for that chapter was these are some pretty fundamental techniques that we have lost. This is a lost skill set, particularly in the last seven to ten years. And it's not just a lost skill set. It's a lost value. And that's the thing that's so disturbing. Where is the breakdown with development of logic? For instance, I encounter freshman students, as you do, who have no paradigm whatsoever, no basic understanding of logos, the word, logic, reason. Uh, it, is, it is just completely alien to them. Uh, so even if you use fundamental concepts like ad hominem, they don't know what it means, and you have to explain it at length to them. Right. Um, uh, where is the fundamental breakdown in education today? Because I didn't encounter this, and I'm going to date myself here, 30 years ago. Yeah, that, that's a – well, now we're going to get into the controversial part of the interview. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I think what you see now is a – an ideology, there's been an ideological takeover. And, I, and I'm and i not talking about mere right or left. I think that's a very bad way to categorize it. I think that there has been a prestatization of values. And so critical race theory, intersectionality, and the suite of ideologies and concepts that go within that. And then the enforce, enforcement mechanisms like safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions that were very popular five, four or five years ago, and now the switch to equity and inclusive spaces. I think that there has been a sea change, an ideological sea change, and I'm happy to explain that and give the genealogy for that. But that ideology is the main reason in which we find ourselves, in, not only in this current cultural moment, but it explains why are there riots? Why are we so polarized? Why Why is it that people can't merely be wrong, but the positions they articulate have to have some existential threat? 
Like they have to be bad people because they believe something as opposed to just being merely mistaken. Okay, I'm going, then, to, I'm going to suggest, and you may not agree with it, uh, and incidentally, let fine. me remind everyone, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and who I'm speaking with is Dr. Peter Bogosian. Uh, with his colleague and friend, James Lindsay, he is the author of How to Have an Impossible Conversation, subtitled A Very Practical Guide. I would say, in, 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 in answer to the issue of why people, on one level at least, are not communicating, is they fail to see the humanity in anyone that opposes them or has a different viewpoint. If you can't get to the, to the individualistic humanity of, if I look at a person who has a, a, a position that's alien or contrary to mine, they are still a human being with a soul. Now, this, <laughs> we might divide on this one, the soul-mind issue, but at least with a mind, okay, and I would, from my perspective, say a soul. Uh, they have a spirit soul that animates them and a mind. And inherent with that is to be regard. Now, a humanist would say the same thing. I look at this individual as being precious, even when I disagree with them. Just as I look at family members who I disagree with as still being precious. That, that, that ability seems to be com- completely absent and void now. I think that's right. My question to you then is, what do you think is the cause of that? Because that certainly was not the case when we were growing up. Certainly not the case when I was growing up. This is a very, very recent phenomenon. I mean, it's an historical phenomenon, and history is punctuated with points like this, well, kind of dark age points. But what causes right. that? In your, your and, and Peter, I welcome you to challenge me on it right now if you want to. And, and, and because, and I, speaking of acknowledging, I haven't thought it through. I do believe if you take away a concept of a deity, uh, an oversoul, to use the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, if you take away that concept of a, of a higher order of being, then there's a lack of accountability. And you would find that distasteful, what I just said. And, and so I welcome your no. rebuttal. But I think you take away uh, a concept of accountability and also a less than self-perception. I don't think of myself as great. I don't think of myself as good. And therefore, because I inherently recognize my own failings, many, 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 how can I stand in judgment of others? Now, please <laughs> throw anything back at you want to me and, uh, and I'll frankly enjoy it. This, this, this may surprise you, but I, I agree. I don't think it's true, but I think if people believe that, this is, again, you mentioned Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens would definitely not agree with this. Yes. I think if people believe that, they're not merely nicer to each other, but they're kinder to each other. And my colleague James and I have referred to this as the substitution hypothesis. The substitution hypothesis is the idea that as traditional religions, particularly Abrahamic religions, specifically Christianity, has been on the decline, things have come in to substitute for that. So that belief is the natural state, the brain is the hardware, and the software is what comes in from the culture. So as that software We've started running new software in our brains, and that software right now has been more. We've been programmed in the university system, in the K through 12 education system, by a set of beliefs, by an ideology and a worldview that is really not very kind, and it's incredibly divisive. So everything you say, I think that the point of difference that we have on that is, I don't believe it's true. But I certainly believe that the outcomes under a benevolent Christianity are far better than the outcomes of this new ideology. And if you will, I've argued before repeatedly that this is a new religion. And frankly, I would prefer the old religion any day of the week. Well, uh... I'm in total agreement with your perspective. And first of all, I'm I'm honored that you've um, articulated, uh, I think, and understand my worldview, even though you don't agree with it. Um, that makes me feel incredibly enriched and acknowledged by you, and I'm grateful for that. Which brings me to the next thing, and that's mm. Rappaport's rules of discussion. There, right. there are four of them, and you are a strong adherent to them. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my senior producer here, uh, Gina Camboni, to articulate all four basic premises, if you will, of the social uh, psychologist Anatole Rappaport's uh, rules for worthy discussion. And here is Gina. Ready? One, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. 
Two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. Three, you should mention anything you have learned from your target. Four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. Why are those rules so important to you? Those rules are indispensable for any conversation. They're, they're so important to me because it forces you to make sure that you understand what people are talking about as opposed to what you want them to believe. If you just want an enemy, if you want a virtue signal to show everybody that you're going to smash a position. Be- before you do it, the first rule is obviously you want to restate the target's position clearly and vividly. So you can't have a conversation with someone unless you've understood what they're talking about. Yes. The second thing, it's a rapport building. Okay, I agree with this, I agree with this, I agree with this. So then they don't demonize you or look at you as an enemy or look at you as someone who just wants to, to borrow a term the kids use, troll them. Mm-hmm. What have I learned from that? An incredibly important idea. So we've gotten this, boom, I understand. They know that you've understood it. Only then do you rebut or criticize. If we only if we if you only follow those four rules, not only would your conversations be more productive, but people would like you more. Epistemology, the branch of philosophy that deals with how you know what you think you know, uh, is really not being considered or taught. Uh, certainly, as you would say, K through twelve. But I'm not convinced mm-hmm. it's being taught even. Uh, at the higher levels of so-called adult education. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't always need to be taught for people to have at least a healthy understanding of, of self-doubt. And as you've said right. at the outset of this program, it seems to be terribly absent uh, at this point. When people do come to those few who perhaps reassess what they've thought or presume to be true, um, and they decide to endorse, if you will, another perspective, mm-hmm. they, can, uh, they can suffer greatly. Um, certainly you suffered as we we spoke of again at the outset, but I've had other people, for instance, Dave Rubin was on the show and he used to be with the Young Turks and what have you. And at that time, um, he said that as soon as he started to reassess some thoughts in his life, uh, he was basically castigated and and just just Mm -hmm. torn apart by those he thought were friends and loved. Mm -hmm. Why do people dump others? I mean, one of the characteristics we are told of cultish behavior is to basically shun uh, if somebody is not a part of the cult anymore. Don't we have this on a much larger scale where if you don't subscribe to what has formerly been approved of, it's the old group think, uh, you, you, you just cast aside. What causes that? Yeah, how, how denigrating to truth. And you have to really make a decision. What do, you, do you love the truth? Do you prefer the truth or comfort? One of the reasons that people won't change their mind, won't revise their beliefs, it's because the only thing that they want more than to be, to be right is to not be lonely. So there are communal mechanisms and relationship mechanisms that keep ideas in place or, or really um, dissuade us from changing our mind and revising our beliefs. In this particular phenomenon, this is a very, it's not just horrible, it's just a ghastly way to approach life. Because not only does it denigrate truth, the Greeks had a word, parahesius, yes. means speaking, tr- speaking truth in the face of danger. And ironically, Foucault, uh, the postmodernist French philosopher, used that. When you speak truth in the face of danger, people, especially ideologues, will, will come for you. And I want to tie this in quickly to epistemology. Before you run around starting, starting to speak truth in the face of danger, you have to make sure that the things that you're talking about are not only lacks to reality, but that you're willing to revise them. And when you said before, I've been thinking about it, when you said before that they don't teach epistemology, that's, that's partially correct. They certainly don't teach epistemology in any classic sense in the universities, but they've switched almost wholesale to talking about standpoint epistemology. And that is that each of us has our own truth. Right. And so, so I'm going to do a deep dive in this for a moment, please. Yes, please and go so, ahead. I have a deep dive you, audience. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. So, so this is how pernicious this ideology is. When you switch to thinking that there's an objective world that you can know, 
through the tools of science and reason and rationality. There's someone by the name of writer Aubrey Lord mm. has a famous line in a, in a book, the master's tools cannot disable the master's house. The master's tools are reason, rationality, epistemic adequacy, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, you know what you're talking about. You can't use those tools to rip down or take down what they consider to be an, an oppressive system, a patriarchy. And so that ties into your point that we know that there are disparities, the idea goes. And anybody saying that there aren't disparities, that denies the lived experience. Another word for standpoint epistemology is lived experience. So we're teaching people that their lived experience trumps everything else. So what, what we see in this culture and this, this ideological movement is that the folks who advocate this and who, who are driving the society back into the Stone Age, they want to take away the very tools that enable us to make discerning judgments about phenomena. I want to ask about what I would call the capitulation to the young I have a friend who was uh, a Maasai, part of the Maasai tribe. And in, uh, yeah. I went to a play with him one time. And I, f I think it was a long day's journey into night or something. We were seeing uh, a play. And uh, he turned to me at the intermission. He said, you know, the interesting thing about American culture. And I said, what's that? And this is 10, 15 years ago. He said, you'd pay no heed to people who are mature, who have the big stick. And I said, well, what do you mean by the big stick? And in the Maasai culture, as you progress from uh, a warrior to an elder, etc., your sticks get larger and get bigger and bigger. Now, those of us, figuratively speaking, who have large sticks, and no menace mm. is meant in that, mm. no euphemism there intended, those of us who have large <laughs> sticks, okay, um, are now, uh, you know, have to uh, cajole those who have a one-inch ruler. And mm. I don't... Yeah, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what's... I, I, look, I, I don't know why, why that would be. It could be that the society just has a... It has expedited its views of, of the declining of authority. It could be... The, I, I honestly don't know. I, but you recognize and you see it happening. Yeah, I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of escape my own reality, my own bubble that I'm in, because I just keep thinking it comes down to several core concepts. It's, it comes down to what students are taught. It comes down to an entire generation of people being taught something, and then that's spilling out of the university in about five to seven years. I don't know what's responsible for that, but my, my gut tells me that whatever is responsible for that is probably responsible for what the philosopher Jürgen Habermas calls a legitimation crisis, and that's the lack of confidence and trust in public institutions. It's the erosion of trust in everything, not just public institutions like the, the police, the Congress, but private institutions, nonprofits like the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's gone off the, the boards, the ACLU, tech giants. Everything. My feeling is that all of these things are bundled together, but but I don't really know. I don't really know what's specifically causally responsible for that. Well, where do we go with this? Some people believe uh, and reason that speech, unless it is curtailed, is actually a, a form of violence. So speech is violence. Where do you go with that? You ask them why. But I think the, the old, I'm 54 now, and the older I am, the more I realize that this is all about what people value. So I, I think we've made the mistake, for example, of thinking that the speech wars on college campuses are about free speech. O only, only superficially they are. I know that sounds odd to say, but what they're really about is cognitive liberty. So how do we help people understand and value those things? That's really what this is about. And the prior question to that is, can some people hold beliefs that are not in their interest, that, that do not bring about the community's flourishing? Like those folks who wanted to kidnap and, and start a civil war, the, the governor of Michigan, which, which is just so insane that it's difficult to, to, to really fathom. I think where we go from here is we, the first step in solving any problem is that we have to be honest about it. It's one of the things that's really 
disturbed me is I think that people are caught into thinking about this as a right problem. Even the idea of right and left has to be reevaluated. Yes. I think you're looking at people who want to tear down the civilization and a non-trivial number of people on both the right and the left, the, the, the far right and the far left. In many senses, it's just a tad more conspicuous culturally on the left and it's a tad more conspicuous politically on the far right. Mm. But what's interesting is, I think at some level, the, those people know that liberal democratic institutions are there to protect and help them. So they can go, like I live in Portland, and they can do things like throw feces at police officers or assault people, and they know that the system will help them. They know that the Gestapo aren't going to come out and mow them down with machine guns. So if there's a kind of safety that the liberal democratic order provides people to allow them to even trash the very order that's extending the umbrella of safety to them. Would you say that the point of seeking truth ends at the point of seeking power? Because I've just written that. I don't know. W w tell me more what you mean. It seems to me that um, I'm, I'm, I loathe to use the term uh, Trump <laughs> because it just is so charged. We nowadays. almost did it. We almost made it through the whole thing that I'm talking about. We almost And I don't did mean it. Donald, okay? I'm not talking about the president. Okay. Just the word Trump okay. means to, to, to okay. um, uh, uh, override. I mean it in that sense, okay? <laughs> I think that if people who are generally interested in the truth will seek the truth, period, it's, it's right. a natural inclination. I think those who seek power will disregard the truth and create their own, or at least try and bludgeon the idea of what they think is truth into the, to the minds of, of the masses. So in other words, if you truly are seeking truth, then you will be less intoxicated by the idea of seeking power. If you seek power, then truth will be the consequence, very often. Yeah, that strikes me as, that strikes me as intuitively true. It certainly strikes me as, as historically true, as history is littered with examples of it. I, you know, I'm also thinking about as a reference point to the postmodernists who um, cer certainly there are some salvageable aspects of postmodernism that we can learn from and advance, advance the human condition. And one of those is the, the acknowledgement that power plays more of a role in systems and systems need to be oriented that way. I think that there's so much wisdom in the philosopher John Rawls. He talks about creating a, society, a fair and just society. And I think, again, resonating with this idea of right now, this is why this is so important. One of the reasons that you see people going berserk and they're freaking out, there's certainly kernels of truth, if not objective data points that we can point to that legitimize many of these concerns, independent of how they're behaving. But... There are disparities in the system, and we need to take an honest look at those and fix those. But the reason I bring those up in relation to your thing about power is because Rawls says that people should be able to rise in a system economically as, as high as, as much as they want, as long as doing so helps the disadvantaged people in society. And there's something unbelievably profound about that. Like, and one of the, the reasons he says is that the people on the bottom will know that the people on the top are working for their own interest. So you should have a society in which your enemy can assign you your social place and you'd be just fine. And we don't have that society now. Part of that is because of the way that power manifests itself. If you could somehow manage to create a society that was so fair, and, and Rawls uses it, and I use it too, is the word their sin and justice is fairness. That was so fair that you wouldn't have rioting because you'd know that the system would be there for you. Now, I think that the system is mostly there for most people most of the time. But there are conspicuous disparities that we have to address. But the way to address those disparities is with the master's tools, reason, evidence, conversation, argument, dialectic. That's how we improve the human condition. It's not by assaulting people. It's not by violence. 
I want to um, ask you one important thing, which I, struck me as incredibly interesting. And that is you say that sometimes it's, it's, you imply it's not worthwhile arguing facts with people. Um, right. Why is that, Peter? And incidentally, those listening were talking to Peter Bogosian, who with his co-author James Lindsay, Dr. James Lindsay, is the author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. So, yeah, how do we, how do we handle this, uh, not to introduce facts when people, you know, there's that, you know, uh, belittling sometimes statement used kind of in the snide yeah. way. Don't let facts confuse you, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, so, so I tell people when I speak publicly that I'm going to tell them something that they will listen to you, but they won't do. And the reason they won't do it is because in general, smart, educated, thoughtful people either tend to believe on the basis of evidence or facts, and, and they naturally think other people do too. But almost inevitably, and the research literature is crystal clear on this, you form your beliefs, particularly your moral beliefs, beforehand, and then you go looking for facts to support them afterward. If people encounter facts that go against their worldview, it, it in, induces what's called the backfire effect, and people hunker down in their beliefs, so they become more confident in the things that they already believe. Okay. So introducing facts is never a good thing. And think about it like this. In the Bill nye Ken Ham debate, there is no fact that would change Ken Ham's mind about evolution and creationism. There's no fact. And the moment yeah. you start thinking, oh, if this person only knew this, then it's not a conversation. You're delivering a message. And that fact will have exactly the opposite effect as, as what you're looking to achieve. Before we get ready to go, there is what's known in communication theory, and you've encountered it, I'm quite sure, and aware of it, what's called a spiral of silence theory which right. says that basically people will close down if they feel that they're outnumbered and uh, right. almost a learned helplessness where they will not speak. Um, well, is this going to become more pervasive? Because people are arguing that in general, left or right, but uh, certainly people more on the right have uh, an innate now distrust for the media. Um, if things right. don't square with what they see or perceive, what we have now is just people, everyone's gone quiet um, on both sides. I am not driving around and seeing many signs or bumper stickers for either candidate. Everyone's just kind of like hit the deck and it's hush, hush, quiet, quiet, which will be right. interesting to see what's going to happen on November 3rd, or, although I suspect we won't know by November 3rd. Um, what is the antidote for this? Just the open forum at all costs and, and not to be afraid? I think that's an antidote, creating a value or making it a virtue to speak your mind Speaking truth in the face of danger, the parahesia. Mm. I think making making it a virtue to say I don't know. Re talking about those values to be again talking about some of those basic Christian values, redemption. So if you have redemption or redemption narrative, it's almost impossible to have cancel culture. Everybody makes a mistake. I've made I don't even know countless mistakes in my life. The response to that is not to take away my livelihood. Yeah. So, so how do we move toward making the society, use John Rawls again, more fair, a, a way forward that's good for all of us? I see no other way than helping people value conversation and, and, and helping people understand if somebody believes something that you don't believe, that's okay. That doesn't make them a Nazi. It doesn't yes. even make them a bad person. So. You can, we say this in How to Have Impossible Conversations, you can let friends be wrong. In fact, if everybody believes the same stuff, the same suite of propositions that you believe, all of your friends, you need to find new friends. Right. Because you're old, never really chal challenging right. and questioning your ideas, right? It's the old saying, if so, everyone's thinking the same thing, then no one's thinking. That's correct. Yeah. Kierkegaard has a, if, every, if everybody's a Lutheran, then nobody's a Lutheran. <laughs> that's right. And, and, you know, similarly, that's why Jerry, Jerry Falwell thought Mother Teresa was going to go to hell because she wasn't born again. So you need to kind of, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so, you know, Ronald Reagan's famous quotation, democracy is never more than, than one, one generation away from ruin. And the thing that we have built, conversation, discourse, and dialogue, and yielding the fruits of those to make better lives, that's a good thing. And we need to make sure that's accessible to everybody. 
And it has to start from the beginning. And this is why I consider myself a liberal. It has to start from the beginning in schools. Everybody has to have a public education of the first grade. People who come from broken homes and and families where they're abused and they don't get nutrition, they need to know that the system is there for them. Dr. Peter Bogosian, before you leave, is there anything you want to say that you think for one reason or another I've neglected to ask you that you'd like to say? Because I I want to afford that license to you, sir. Um, I think these are really difficult times. And I think that the way forward is not only to be honest about ourselves, I think that the way forward is to really understand what's at stake if we fail. All that we have built, our health care, what is at stake? What does it mean for democracy if the results of this election are not just disputed, but even worse things that could happen? So if there was ever a time to listen and to be compassionate and to try to understand people whose voices are different than yours, this is that time. Mm. And don't expect reciprocity. Mm. Don't expect because if you listen to them, they're going to listen to you. If you want to change someone's mind, if you're so convinced that you're correct about something, the way to do that is to show them compassion and kindness. If you really want to change someone's mind, then be a decent human being. Well said he, the theist to the atheist. You are one of the dearest persons on the intellectual front in my life, and I feel such ironically kindred spirit with you. And uh, although from afar, I'd like to consider you a friend. And um, you are such an important voice, uh, both you and James Lindsay and Miss Buckrose, Dr. Buckrose as well. You, sir, I consider you a friend from afar, and I'm profoundly grateful for our relationship. Thank you. You've been listening to Watching America. Uh, I've been and still presumably will continue to be Dr. Alan Campbell. And my guest, likewise with him, he is and will continue to be, we, we certainly and surely hope, Dr. Peter Bogosian. He is the co-author with James Lindsay of the spectacular book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. You know, it's not as hard once you, you learn some basic rules, as he explains. And indeed, as the subtitle implies or states, it's a very practical guide. So if you want to uh, have a better quality of life and more importantly, be significant as far as bringing about peace and understanding in the most genuine fashion, please pick up this book. It's, it's, it's wonderful, utterly. Well, last time I got off the line with you, I sillyly, foolishly <laughs> said, God bless. But um, in the name of the God who does not exist, according to you, May that non-existent God bless you. <laughs> well, I I truly uh, appreciate that sentiment, and I say that from the bottom of my heart. It's a lot to me. Thank you. been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bevo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.